Bookstack, the new books and ideas podcast from American Purpose with me, Richard Aldous. Check out our website, AmericanPurpose.com, where you can subscribe to the newsletters and read essays such as Francis Fukuyama on liberalism and its discontents. Coming up on the show today, Lindsay Chavinsky on her new book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Uh, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So congratulations on the new book. Um, It's not set out explicitly in the Constitution. So why did George Washington decide to create a cabinet? Well, that's a perfect place to start. As you said, it's the cabinet is not in the Constitution and no legislation ever created it. But Washington really tried to stick to the options that were laid out in the Constitution. And, you know, best laid plans sometimes go awry. And he discovered that the options for obtaining advice and support were simply insufficient or not um, efficient enough to deal with the very real world challenges that were facing him as the first president. And so he created the cabinet two and a half years in the administration, which I think is really important to emphasize and note that it wasn't there from day one to provide that support and advice when he was faced with really big constitutional questions, diplomatic crises, or domestic insurrections. Yeah, you start the book with this wonderful story of Washington going to the Senate, which then was in Wall Street, wanting them to advise and consent, and then just exploding with frustration at how unhelpful that process was. So uh, you kind of seem to imply that really he's creating this cabinet to fill a vacuum. Absolutely. I think that it's um, really important to recognize that the framers of the Constitution expected the Senate to be a advisory body on foreign policy. So that clause in Article 2 that says the president with the advice and consent of the Senate can make treaties and foreign appointments, they took that advice part really seriously. And Washington did too, which is why he did go to the Senate, as you mentioned. I I tell that story in the very beginning of the book. And I think he expected them to act like the officers in his councils of war and debate the issues and answer the questions that he had brought for them. And instead, they acted like a legislative body and wanted to refer it to committee and meet about it privately. And so I think it was a a case of really mismatched expectations. And he was really frustrated and convinced that the Senate could not provide him what he needed. Yeah, I was struck as I was reading it that it's almost he's almost the complete opposite of that other well-known commander-in-chief, Wellington, who defeated Napoleon, but who became prime minister. And after his first cabinet meeting, kind of wrote something in his diary along the lines of, you know, they filed in, I gave them their orders, but then they wanted to discuss them. Uh, Washington, <laughs> Washington actively wanted to discuss these things. Yeah, he did. And I think that's a great comparison because Washington very rarely went into either a council of war or into a cabinet meeting with a really set idea about what he wanted to do. The only exception was maybe early on in the war when he really wanted to invade Boston and his officers were like, no, 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 that's a very, very bad idea. But in his presidency, he very rarely went in and and gave orders and dictated what the plan was going to be. He genuinely wanted to hear from the secretaries that he had selected that were experienced and educated and very knowledgeable men. And he wanted that information in order to form the best possible decision and create the best possible outcome. 
Yeah, you do. You really effectively convey this sense of Washington as being such an intimidating uh, figure that, I mean, it really is a sign of confidence, isn't it? That he was never going to be overshadowed or overwhelmed, even with the likes of Hamilton and Jefferson in that in that cabinet. Yeah, that's that's definitely right. I think that it's hard for us today to sort of wrap our minds around the stature and the prestige that he brought to the presidency and to that position, because we don't really have one person that overshadows everyone else now. We, you know, we have famous athletes and we have movie stars and we have philanthropists and then we also have politicians. But in the 17 at the end of the 1780s, he and maybe Benjamin Franklin were the best known Americans in the entire world and everyone knew who he was and almost everyone respected him. And he also cut a very imposing figure. He was, you know, very tall, he was broad-shouldered and there's been some, you know, fun poked at those descriptions, but even today I think it's we, you know, we pay attention when someone comes in the room and they are a big figure and so he was he was no different. Yeah, I did think it was something that uh, that the Broadway musical actually really conveyed beautifully, that you did get these titanic cabinet battles between Jefferson uh, and Hamilton over the financial system and foreign policy and so on. Uh, but, but that musical Hamilton really did convey that sense that ultimately it was Washington who decided and that the respect that both Jefferson uh, and Hamilton had for him. Yeah, I I love the I'm such a huge fan of the musical and of course it's art so it's going to, you know, take some some liberties with some things and you know, exaggerate some other things, but I was really impressed by how accurate they presented the relationships between the cabinet members um, and also the discussions. So the cabinet battle number 1, that did take place in writing, that wasn't an in-person meeting. But this, the positions they were talking about are, are pretty spot on. And cabinet battle number two, of course, they weren't rapping in, seven, in the 1790s, or at least we don't think that they were. Um, but, you know, the, the concept of what they were talking about, how they were presenting their arguments and their relationship to Washington is really extraordinary. And that's pretty great, isn't it, for for you as a historian to see these things kind of uh, conveyed through popular culture in that way and to have uh, teenagers and more kind of memorising the lines of these kind of cabinet battles and then going off and and maybe reading about them uh, through books like yours. Oh, it's been such a gift because so many people will ask me, you know, oh, I saw the musical and I loved it, but what actually happened? So people know that it's art and they want to learn more and they are invested in learning the history and it has introduced whole new generations to this period of time, which I think, of course, obviously I spend my career on it, but I think it's so important. And so I'm thrilled that people are interested and when I saw it personally, I will confess that I basically bawled the entire time because it was so meaningful to see on stage. Um, and, you know, after having spent all these years writing about the subject. So I think it's a real gift. I, d- I guess the other thing that comes out in the book um, is the ruthlessness of Washington. I mean, the story of poor old uh, Edmund Randolph and and his humiliation in cabinet. I, I mean, I could, I was kind of just looking through my fingers as you were telling that tale. It was so painful. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that that came across in that way because I really felt for him. And I wish that I could have been a fly on the wall to really hear what those conversations were like. 
But I think that's an incredible moving um, moment as well. And you're right. I mean, Washington was a very politically savvy person. And I think we do him a great disservice and we do the history a great disservice if we make him out to be this marble-like bust figure. And instead, he was conniving. He was duplicitous. He was thin-skinned. And that you know, is the real truth and the real story. And it's actually a much more fascinating story. Yeah. And just remind us what happens to Randolph. So um, one of the amazing things about this part of the book that I actually kind of struggled with is we don't really have a great sense of finality. We don't know for sure what happened, but mm. the, the best thing that I can tell or the best information I can gather is that in 1794, as the Whiskey Rebellion was breaking out, Randolph at this point was the Secretary of State. And Washington had asked him to sort of stay cozy with the French because they were trying to keep that relationship a positive one. And in a letter or in a conversation, Randolph basically said to the French minister, you know, for a couple thousand dollars, you could really sway the outcome of these events. And what I believe that he meant is if you invested in the rebels, then they could break off from the United States and really change the course of history. That letter was intercepted a couple years later because the French sent it back to sent copies of this conversation back to Paris and the ship was captured by the British and the British minister turned it over to Oliver Wolcott Jr., who was the Secretary of Treasury at that point, and Timothy Pickering, who was the Secretary of War. And neither of them were particularly fond of Randolph. And I think they probably resented the influence and the sway and the position that he had with Washington. And so they shared this information with Washington. And of course, it was all in French and Washington didn't speak or read French. So he relied on Pickering and Wolcott's interpretation or translation, which I think was frankly a pretty poor translation. So essentially, they were accusing him of treason because they were saying that he had offered you know, to sway the outcome of events for a bribe. When he was confront, when Randolph was confronted with this information, rather than just explaining that, which I think he probably could have done, especially since he had all of the papers kept in his office, he reacted the way someone would react in honor culture. And I think this is a really important part of the story. And um, Joanne Freeman is a historian of the early republic who has written really compellingly about honor culture, but basically. He was so affronted that he would be accused of such things because his reputation was so important to him. And frankly, his relationship with Washington, which was decades old at this point, was so important to him that he couldn't fathom that he was being accused of this. And he just resigned. And then he locked up his office and he didn't take any papers with him. And he then later tried to sort of rehabilitate his image by putting together this case. And maybe some of the papers got lost in the mail or maybe... Timothy Pickering didn't send them. I don't know. But he accused Washington of not being helpful and then published all of this correspondence, which was the absolute worst way to maintain a relationship with Washington because he hated airing of dirty laundry. So it just really ended up being this kind of calamitous end to a, such an important relationship. And I think one that they both really regretted. And it does show how really for a kind of a cabinet minister, and maybe this is the flaw in the system, that cabinet secretaries really have no legitimacy or mandate themselves. It is all about the trust of the president. And if you lose the trust of the president, effectively, 
uh, you're finished. Unlike, for example, the British system, where a cabinet minister will have their own mandate because they'll be a parliamentarian. So it really is all about that relationship between the president and the cabinet secretary. And that's that, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. And I think it does make for a very different type of relationship because the president isn't ever obligated to listen to the secretaries. I mean, he probably should um, as a general rule of thumb, but he isn't obligated to. And so if you know they disagree with him, there's not really much that they can do. And if that relationship is a poor one, then that's kind of it for their influence. Whereas, as you said, at the British system, because they do have the seat in parliament and are part of the coalition that has come into power, they have a lot more institutional prestige. Yeah, I ran across a a quote from Henry Kissinger. He said, I know of no exception to the principle that secretaries of state are influential if and only if they are perceived as extensions of the president. So uh, that, that phrase, extension of the president, that seems to have been true for Washington as much as it was true for Henry Kissinger and beyond. Definitely. So what about um, thinking about the way what happens afterwards? So kind of Adams and Jefferson are the the kind of the next presidents. Do they carry on uh, with Washington's precedent? I suppose we should probably uh, mention John Quincy Adams here, who, if the dedication of the book is anything to go by, must be your favourite president. So um, he is certainly one of my favorite people to study. The dedication, um, for those of you who haven't read it, is to Jake, my husband, and JQDA, which is my dog, um, Quincy Dog Adams. Uh, He is, I think, one of the most, I I mean, he was a terrible president, let's be honest, but he is just one of the most fascinating people and uh, such a joy to read about, especially his diary, because he was very funny in a dry sort of way. I'm not quite um, sure. I'm not quite sure what to think about you naming your dog after somebody who you think was a really terrible president. But maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't discuss that on the podcast. <laughs> but he was a really <laughs> extraordinary Secretary of State, is the thing, and a really extraordinary congressman. So you just kind of have to ignore that president part. Very good. And what about John Adams <laughs> and uh, Jefferson and the and the cabinet? Yeah. So at the end of Washington's presidency, he actually turned away from cabinet meetings and went back to sort of one-on-one consultations or written correspondence or even consulted with people outside of the administration like John Jay and Alexander Hamilton. And so what that meant was exactly what we were just talking about. The cabinet does not have a right to be a part of the decision-making process. They are invited in when the president wants them there, but it's very much up to whatever the president thinks is going to be the best way for him or eventually her to make a decision. And so Adams was basically, um, he could have kind of done whatever he wanted because again, there was no legislation requiring this, but it's really important to think about the context. And this was the first peaceful transfer of power in US history. And most of these guys were students of history So they knew that generally transfers of power were accompanied by revolution, guillotines, death, and usually a whole lot of drama. And so Adams was trying to provide as smooth as possible of a transition and give people some comfort and confidence in the system. And so he retained Washington's department secretaries as a way to continue some institutional knowledge. That backfired spectacularly because... Uh, They were all very loyal to Alexander Hamilton as opposed to being loyal to the office of the presidency. And so they worked hard to undermine his foreign policy, 
to thwart his reelection campaign. Basically, you name it, they tried to scuttle it. So that wasn't really ideal. And Thomas Jefferson, who was vice president at the time, was observed. He wasn't in on the cabinet meetings, but he was observing all of this. And he, of course, had served in Washington's cabinet. So when he came into office, he wrote this spectacular letter to all of his department secretaries. And he said, basically, we're going to take the best of both of these systems and we're going to avoid the worst. And we're going to follow the first term model that Washington set, which was that most of the business of the executive branch was going to be handled in one-on-one -on -one meetings or in writing. And if there was a big issue that came up, like a war or a rebellion or an international crisis or a constitutional question, then we will meet in a cabinet. And the reason he said that was so important was because that would allow him to maintain um, a hold on all of the information and basically serve as like the center of the wheel for the administration. The part that he didn't write was that he didn't want regular meetings because that he saw that as transferring too much authority to the department secretaries. And he was very careful to avoid that sort of transfer of power that had happened or what he perceived had, had happened in Washington's second term when Hamilton sort of ran roughshod over Washington, according to Jefferson. Once Adams and Jefferson had a cabinet, then there was never any conversation about presidents after that not having a cabinet. And so each president has really put their own stamp on it, but um, there's never really been a conversation of getting rid of it. Yeah, and I, I guess one of the things that is interesting about this is that it does reinforce that sense of the the power of the executive, that it's easy to imagine that if Washington had gone in a different direction in those first two terms, that maybe the legislature would have been, would have been more directive uh, in terms of policymaking and so on, and the executive would have been much weaker. Yeah, it's a really important point because the cabinet in Washington's administration, and frankly also in Adams and Jefferson's, despite their flaws or, or pros, they worked really hard to expand and support the power of the presidency. Not because the cabinet would gain more power, but because the president would gain more power. So in the book, I talk about a couple of different case studies, the Neutrality Crisis, the Whiskey Rebellion, and Jay's Treaty, where the cabinet is actively working with the president to carve out additional spaces of authority or additional presidential jurisdiction over domestic and foreign policy in a way that maybe was not expected by a lot of people and had the sort of long-term ramifications of making the executive much more powerful than perhaps anticipated. So how does the, the role of the cabinet change over the next 200 years or so? Washington has set the precedent. Uh, how does that evolve uh, throughout American political history? Well, as I said, each president definitely has the opportunity to put their own stamp on the institution. It is incredibly flexible. And so if a president is really close with one secretary or another, then that can be their primary advisor. Of course, it has expanded. It's much larger now than just four people. And there's the National Security Council, which has a lot of the responsibilities of sort of the initial cabinet. But that flexibility and the options for the president to meet with people, to discuss with advisors, is very much still there. And I would actually argue that that is one of Washington's biggest and most underappreciated legacies, is that each president actually gets to decide who their closest advisors are going to be. And sometimes it's a secretary of state, sometimes it's a vice president, 
Sometimes it's a family member, like for example, JFK was very close with his brother who also happened to be the attorney general. Sometimes it's business acquaintances or people out of the administration. And whoever the president decides to talk to, they can do so sort of whenever and however they wish. And there's very little public or congressional oversight. And I think that is a legacy and a tradition that we haven't fully grappled with. Yeah, and I guess the different presidents, different emphases. So, for example, President Trump has a lot of appointments from the military and business. Uh, the previous administration had more kind of traditional political and academic style appointments. So the cabinet, as you say, does seem to reflect the character uh, of the president, something else that started with Washington. Yes, and I think the cabinet is, um, again, I, I know I'm sort of a, a broken record on this, it is an underappreciated but really important way to evaluate the presidency because any major policy, any major decision, any major event, the cabinet is probably going to be front and center or at least part of that decision. If a cabinet is working really well and if the president is managing the cabinet, we tend not to see it. It tends to sort of blend into the background and the president gets all the acclaim for these brilliant things that they've done. But if the cabinet is going badly, if there is scandal or turnover or cabinet misdeeds, then that becomes all of a sudden very obvious and um, very much present in our understanding of an administration. And so I think as we're thinking about presidential leadership or how to understand presidents and how to study them, the cabinet should really be a central part of that consideration. Yeah, it's interesting. As you you say, secretaries, they do tend to go a bit under the radar, don't they? A little bit. Um, you know, when you, you think of congressional figures and uh, governors who very often are national figures, you know, I wonder how many ordinary Americans, for example, could pick Steve Mnuchin out of a lineup, yet arguably he's the second most important political figure in the United States. Absolutely. And when people were aware of him because of that um, particularly fascinating image of he and his wife holding a lot of money. That was not a very positive moment for the administration. So that's a great example of generally cabinets being in the spotlight is not a good thing for an administration. But is it is it this point that you mentioned before that they are essentially seen as an extension of the president? So perhaps not seen as being independent actors in their own right. We've actually we've got um, uh, Susan Glasser and Peter Baker coming to do a Zoom conversation uh, oh, on 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 their new book about James Baker, and he's one of those figures, isn't he? The book is called um, "The Man Who Ran uh, Who Ran Washington." Yeah, it's a great uh, book. But there's there a kind of a sense that he's somebody who was in that position because of his very close relationship uh, with George H.W. Bush. Yes, and he was really effective because of his close relationship. So that's another one of the things about especially the contemporary cabinet that is so important is a secretary's relationship with the president or, you know, depending on how a White House is run, relationship with the chief of staff or even a relationship with this is kind of a confusing description, but there is actually a cabinet secretary whose job is to sort of manage the cabinet, not to be confused with the department secretaries. And so depending on the administration and, um, you know, H.W. Bush is a great example. He had a cabinet secretary who he really valued and he was close to. So that meant that the cabinet 
often went through that person and that relationship that that person really helped to facilitate good relationships. But if you have a cabinet secretary who the president doesn't really care to hear from, then it makes it much harder for the department secretaries in the cabinet to have that close relationship. Um, I guess that, I mean, we have a, a fair idea of what to expect if there's a second term of the, the Trump administration. But Joe Biden has been part of the cabinet before when he was vice president. Um, what do you think we could expect of a Biden administration in terms of cabinet government if it happens? Well, I think that having had that particularly unique experience as a vice president who was very valued, he will probably do the same thing. That I should say that is more the aberration than the norm. Usually vice presidents aren't particularly close to presidents, but I think both Biden and Harris have made clear that they want a close working partnership. I suspect that there will be some people pulled in from the Obama-Biden administration, um, whether it's in the foreign policy sector or um, you know, people who have had previous experience that he's worked well with. I also think, and we know from his own words, that he has said that he wants to appoint a cabinet that looks like the country. And I think that's actually a really important point to focus on because that is a legacy and a precedent that Washington established. And most presidents, with the current uh, president being an exception, have followed that example. Now, of course, um, all of Washington's department secretaries were white men, and our concept of diversity has expanded pretty substantially since then. But at the time, they came from different parts of the nation. They had different economic and education and religious backgrounds. They had different bases of knowledge, and they represented different um, sort of factional interests in the country. And the American people understood that. And they understood that Washington was trying to pull together a cabinet that did represent the different parts of the country. And so it's been a pretty steady increase since then about increasing diversity because it's such a fantastic way to allow people and to help people feel like the, the administration is speaking for them and sees them and hears them. And so my guess is that Biden would continue to do the same thing and that we would see people of all races, genders, ethnicities, sexual orientations, education, you know, experiential backgrounds. And I think that that would benefit him. I mean, you you say on the the first uh, first couple of pages of the book as Washington is pulling into Wall Street that uh, he gets out of his coach uh, and his slaves are holding the horses. Well, what do you make of the the current controversies about uh, people like Washington and their relationship with slavery? Well, I think it's our history. Um, you know, we there are really good things and there are really bad things, and I don't think that they cancel each other out or. You know, if we we can't, I don't think we can put people into an Excel spreadsheet and say, well, here are their pluses and here are their minuses. I think it's really important to tell the full story, but I think that we can both acknowledge that Washington could be incredibly cruel and hurtful and do conniving kind of awful things, and also was an extraordinarily powerful person and left these really important precedents, and neither make the other untrue. And I think that we would benefit as a country from looking at people in a full way um, because people are flawed today too. And so looking at flawed individuals and seeing what they're able to accomplish despite those bad things makes it much more likely that we can accomplish things today despite our flaws. 
So the book is The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. It's written by my guest, Lindsay Chavinsky, and published by Harvard University Press. Uh, But for now, Lindsay, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying have a great week.